Good morning and welcome to the Solving Wildfire podcast. This is a highly abbreviated Flashpoint edition. I'm your host, Brian Gardner, today with Kane Steinbrucker, Chief Fire Warden of the Clearwater County Potlatch Timber Protective Association in Idaho. Being a Flashpoint, we'll dive right in. I've been with this organization for about 25 years now. I started on a hand crew in the late 90s, still in high school, working summers. And once I graduated from high school, there was really no looking back. Fire was what I was interested in doing, and I was planning on making a career of it. I've stayed with this organization through the entirety of my career, filled most of the roles along the way, and eventually worked my way up to the chief fire warden position. We have four stations on our 1 million acres that we protect. I think it's like any industry. Technology is certainly on a curve and, and uh, boy, it sure feels like in our industry, it's, it's a wave that's about to break. You know, it seems like just when you think it can't get any better, there's something brand new that just totally blows your mind. You're talking a thousand pound lift capacity. That's comparable to our type three helicopter platforms that we're utilizing now. We fly 70 to 120 gallons in those aircraft and Certainly, fixed wings do have their place when airily delivering fire retardant, the traditional orange stuff that folks think about. But we do utilize the helitankers, the sky cranes that that uh, you're probably familiar with if you've been talking with the folks there at Erickson. We utilize those to deliver retardant as well, especially when we need to place it very strategically. You just need to make sure that you can deliver enough of it to make it worthwhile. When you're only delivering 100 gallons, is that spitting on the fire or is that actually making a difference? It just depends on the fire. Oftentimes it is just spitting on it, but oftentimes that can make the difference between that fire staying small and being caught in the initial attack phase. And you can hold it there instead of having to continue on into extended attack and spend sometimes over millions of dollars to to corral those fires. So small expense up front oftentimes yields some big rewards if you can implement it in a timely fashion. Your own fleet of these smaller type three helicopters? No, we contract ours. We contract one through an exclusive use contract every year. It's a Bell 206 L3 or an L4. It's a fairly common platform. The benefits of those small type three platforms is that they can dip out of small water sources, little ponds, small creeks. Our pilots are very good at making just a small water source work for them and being able to find and access that somewhere near the fire rather than having to make a turnaround to somewhere like a river or a lake that a helitanker may have to do. So they can deliver more cycles of water in a short amount of time. Obviously, they're not delivering as much, but there's certainly some benefit there to having them fast. One of the pitches of the drone companies is you can autonomously control 10 drones in the airspace far more safely than you can even just two helicopters. Right, Ryan. And you bring up a good point. The airspace conflict is always an issue with us. If we have three or more aircraft on a fire, we're going to have an air group tactical supervisor that that coordinates all of that aircraft. And obviously they'll be in contact with the folks on the ground. Currently we don't operate unmanned aircraft systems at the same time that we're operating manned aircraft systems. The platforms that we're using right now are so small that they're difficult for pilots to see. They're untrackable. So it's just too dangerous for us to operate the two at the same time. A lot of incident commanders aren't familiar with working with those aircraft platforms. A lot of folks come up through the ground resource step ladder, so to speak. There's different career paths in fire. There's aviation, there's engines, there's crews, there's smoke jumping. And so everybody kind of comes up in a different way and has a different skill set and a different comfort level with working with certain things. 
What portion of your people are on the payroll and what portion are just volunteers? All of the folks that work for our organization are paid professional firefighters. During the peak of fire season, we employ roughly 50 folks. We are a full-time fire organization. We have some local rural volunteer fire departments who are, as you said, unpaid volunteers. I believe on my district alone, there's 12 or 13 different unpaid volunteer fire departments that also work hand in hand with us. We may just get one engine staff with two folks, or we may get 20 folks. It really just depends on the size of the department. We protect 1 million acres of federal, state, and private ground, but we don't own the land. So the loss actually is incurred by those landowners. I will say that we do have tracts of land that have over $40 million per square mile of timber on them. So we're dealing with hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars in timber, which is a commercial resource. It's a crop to these landowners. It's not old growth timber. It's a cycled crop, just like a wheat farmer would grow wheat. It just takes a little longer. As far as budgets for detection, we do spend between about twenty-five dollars and $50,000 a year on fire detection. We do have a couple of fixed wing platforms that we operate. That's our primary source of detection. It's all visual detection. It's a daily flight in the afternoon. We also are working on implementing camera systems on our mountaintop lookouts. Currently, they don't have infrared detection capabilities, but that's something that we're considering in the future. Those camera systems are very expensive and take a lot of support to install. Do you guys have your own tech teams, your own engineers that are developing this? We don't. Our organization is somewhat of an arm of the Idaho Department of Lands. And so we utilize their tech folks to help us in developing and implementing these systems. Don't get me wrong. There are some very smart, motivated and talented individuals there. But oftentimes there's a lot more folks like yourself who are outside of the industry who have the expertise and who are always looking for the next best thing. And I think it's just an organic collaborative effort of those two stars colliding at the right time to create real innovation in an industry. There's certainly good ideas that come from our side, but we need people like you who have the knowledge, skills, and abilities in these arenas to say whether this is possible or not. It's easy for us to come up with a good idea. It's very difficult for that idea to be implemented, accepted, and turned into the norm. We're certainly no stranger to using infrared technology, especially at night. That seems to be when it works the best, when the ground is cool, but the areas of the fire are hot. Basically, there is a need that outweighs the amount of platforms that are available, especially on a busy fire season. To receive additional funding for more of those platforms, it has to come from two directions. It has to come from our side with us requesting through our interagency partners. And then also it's going to have to come from those contractors or vendors side of things, having the platforms available and soliciting for those contracts. Those are, those are resources that are contracted in, in the springtime for, say, an entire region. In fact, they may start in one region and work their way around through three or four regions as fire seasons go on. But unmanned aerial aircraft are something that you're looking into doing a larger platform. That might be something anytime that we can take the human exposure out of something and not expose someone to the chance of an aircraft crash, that increases safety. It may come with its own set of safety protocols to ensure safety for folks on the ground if there's night shifts working or whatever. If there's an unmanned aerial platform that has this infrared technology available that can be launched from, say, Spokane, Washington, and cover the entire 
group of fires that's burning in the Northwestern area, I, I would think that that would be a helpful piece of technology, even if you can shrink that down to the regional level or the zone level, if you can have those platforms available at each zone that may negate the need for manned aerial detection flights during the day. I can see where that would be a, an option for the future. When the entrepreneur comes, says, I'm raising money and these are going to be my contracts, the investor is saying, is that really going to be your contract? Can those people actually sign? Well, I'll start with saying that there's innovation in our business every year as far as contracting goes. So I'm not 100% sure on whether there are, say, R&D contracts available, but there's new pieces of equipment that hit the fire line seems like every year. And I think it's just a matter of negotiating rates for that equipment. But again, that's not my expertise. I'm an operational for our organization. The other thing would be to ensure that that's a reimbursable expense. For us as a district, if we were to contract something like that, we would need to, in advance, work through our channels with the folks that fund us and, and that would be that way no matter what organization you were paired up with. Like I said, there's certainly ways to take an idea and develop something and take it and try it out and see if it works. Can you share roughly what the pre-suppression budget is per year? It varies from year to year and it varies depending on the size of the districts. A smaller district may be three dollars to $400,000. A larger district could be a couple million dollars. How about suppression for an active fire? What's the budget for that? In Idaho, the actual cost of suppressing the fire is reimbursed by the state. So any state or private lands who have paid in the assessment, the state reimburses us to suppress the fires on those grounds. I don't want to use the term uh, blank check, but it's basically at that point... So for an entrepreneur building early detection technology, that's going to have to fill within the predictable budget, the pre-suppression budget. On the other hand, for fire suppression technology, when an active fire is going, that can be billed as it is used. So the technology can be developed, contracts can be in place, but the state doesn't have to spend any money until the technology is actually used. The incident commander has the authority to call on that technology if he's comfortable with it, that it's going to be used in the right way at the right time, probably at night when manned aerial equipment is not in the air. Probably the place to introduce this technology would be at the state level, that or the regional level for the forest, just because that gives them a wide area to test this technology on and to glean funding from, if you will. So if it's at the state level, say in Idaho, and you test that technology. At that point, you're working with the folks that make the decisions on contracting for the state. So that's probably the best place to start is at that level. There would certainly be ample funding opportunities at the federal level, but it definitely is going to be a heavier lift to, to get that done, I think. I think the, uh, the idea of using those aircraft at night, the conflict of manned aircraft at that point is mitigated. In Idaho, at least, we don't use aircraft on fire after dark. So that would certainly be an excellent place to start, especially just to get your foot in the door. A big piece is just the pilots who are up in the air becoming comfortable with other small objects, maybe even large objects, but other unmanned objects up in the air with them. And that's 
their life's on the line. Yep, absolutely. And uh, I think you'll find that in the fire industry, no matter what technology we start to move to the forefront, um, safety will always be the first discussion that we're going to have about it. And I think infrared technology in an unmanned flight after dark is probably, in my mind, a, a good place to start. What kind of dollar sizes are we looking at? How much money are we spending for a type one to make a drop? How much money for your type three? What are the ends of the spectrum there? Oh, I know I did contract a Blackhawk a couple of years ago that was, I think it was around $7,000 an hour that did not pay for its availability. That was just its operating rate. A type three helicopter, you can generally figure you're in the $2,000 an hour operating rate for something like that. When you're comparing that cost to something else, it's pretty easy to, to justify the cost of something that costs less per hour. So if an incident commander is making the call, do I send up drones or do I send up manned? And we have dollars on this section, dollars on that section. They have the authority and they're probably not going to get in too much trouble if they choose the less expensive option, especially if it's half the cost. That's correct. Yeah. You know, we're a very cost conscious organization. We we like to keep our cost per acre for fire suppression as low as we possibly can. We're cognizant of the fact that we're spending the, the taxpayers' dollars and we want to do that as judiciously as possible. Now, how about tactical surveillance? How much for eyes in the sky? That would be that air tactical group supervisor. They provide that aerial reconnaissance for those folks. And those platforms are typically, I'm assuming, probably three to $5,000 an hour for something like that. Don't quote me, but I know charter rates for those aircraft are fairly high. So the contract rate will be as well. Is there anything that you would want to close on? We implement new technology every year in our industry, so I know it's certainly possible. It's just finding the right channels to route that through and having the right input. It's certainly going to take input from our operational side to guide the direction of the way this goes so that we can end up with a product that that we feel is usable on our end. Like I said, that discussion on the front end of any of this new implementation of technology is always going to be, first and foremost, the safety factor. I think innovation in our industry is certainly very important. So I appreciate you reaching out and always happy to help when I can, where I can. That concludes our flashpoints with Kane Steinbrucker, Chief Fire Warden of the Clearwater County Potlatch Timber Protective Association in Idaho. You can find the full interview on the main site. Thanks for joining. <laughs>